Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And He is a God who pursues us and comes after us to give us a heart that is fit to worship Him. Please turn in your Bibles, if you can, to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll be covering three chapters this morning, and so we'll be leaving around 1 o'clock. So I hope you brought your lunch or snack with you. I'm just kidding. Or maybe I'm not. We'll find out together, see how the Spirit moves. Um, We've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and of course, the book of Deuteronomy itself means repetition of the law, and so there are certain themes that are repeated throughout. And so in order not to repeat ourselves as preachers, what we're doing is trying to pick particular themes and move through the book of Deuteronomy a little faster. But if Deuteronomy is new to you, if the Bible is new to you, it's the fifth book of the, the Old Testament. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so much has already happened for the people of God by the time we get to this book. They've been set apart by the Lord. They had been called by Him. They had multiplied. They had gone into Egypt where they endured 400 years of harsh slavery. From there, God rescued them in order to bring them to a good land where they would worship him, where they would sing hallelujah, as we were just doing a second ago. However, it's evident from what we read in the story of Israel that they weren't quite ready for the good land. See, their hearts had been shaped by 400 years of slavery. And so they came out of Egypt grumbling, complaining, disputing, ungrateful at times, acting very much like spoiled children. It's like that saying I used to hear when I was a kid, you can take a person out of the hood, but you can't take the hood out of the person. But that's exactly what needed to happen to them. They needed to leave the hood behind. They needed to leave Egypt behind. And so God uh, puts them on a long journey, a journey that should have taken about seven days, I looked it up on Google Maps from Cairo, where, around where Chris is right now, to Jerusalem. It's about a 164-hour walk, or a seven-day journey, or a 10-hour drive, but they didn't quite have the luxury of that. And so in order for them to make it to the good land, they needed a character change. But as we all know, character doesn't change right away. I don't know if you've ever been quarantined for someone for about a week, as we all were, a couple of years ago, but character doesn't change all that quickly, right? So instead of the Google Maps journey and route, God put them on the Apple Maps journey and route. I don't know if if you've ever typed in an address on Apple Maps, but something that should take 15, 20 minutes somehow has you going like through Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, just to get to the arch. And God put them on that journey because character change takes time. This is what they needed. It's the process known as sanctification. It's a long, it's a hard journey. It's a journey that has made many good pilgrims quit. It's made many good pilgrims turn back or to say, I wish I was back in Egypt. And it's a journey that has made many good pilgrims think to themselves that they have what it takes to do it on their own, to sing with Frank Sinatra at the end, I did it my way. But we all know that that doesn't necessarily work out that way. We cannot do it on our own. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism actually tells us that sanctification is the work of God's Spirit, whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and are enabled more and more every day to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And righteousness is what we need in order to enter into the good land. And like the people of God, thousands of years ago, we too will go through this process of sanctification, a period in the wilderness on that Apple Maps journey of life so that God can work out of us what has no place in the good land. And that's what we're trying to figure out this morning. How is it that God works these things out of us? Because he tells those Christian, those Israelites long ago, and what he's telling us today is that we must stay on the whole way of the Lord in order to enter into the good land. We must stay on the whole way of the Lord. But how is it that we do that exactly? That is what we will be discovering together this morning. Of course, we're covering three chapters, and so I'm going to select certain passages, and I'll direct us through it as we read. But first, we'll start in Deuteronomy 8. We'll be reading verses 1 and 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And skip down to verse 17. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And then over to chapter 9, verse 6. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And chapter 10, verse 12 through 15. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people, as you are this day. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us hearts, soft hearts, ready to hear your word, Father, and that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord of lords and King of kings. Pray this in your son's holy name, the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So the question we're asking this morning is how do we stay on the whole way of the Lord? First, let's look together at chapter 8, verse 3. That's very small phrase there where it says, He humbled you and let you hunger. Well, that's not very nice, Lord. Right? That you Christians say that 
Your God is loving, but here it seems that he's being cruel. To humble someone on purpose, well, that's like shaming, right? And to let someone feel a need, a need like hunger, well, that's just cruel. And I think that we think that because we live in a society that tells us at every turn that you should have whatever you want whenever you want it. We live in the Amazon Prime same-day shipping society where we want it, we need it, let's get it right now. And I think what this has done, it's, it's created a population of spoiled children. And studies have been out for years already on what happens to children who get whatever they want whenever they want it. One psychologist, Dr. Dan Kindlin, he put it this way, when spoiled youngsters, those who get whatever they want when they want it, become teenagers, not even adults yet, but just teenagers, they're more prone to excessive self-absorption, lack of self-control, they experience anxiety and depression. So we're trying to love our children, we're trying to give them whatever they want, and it actually ends up having the opposite effect of what we intended. Actually, withholding certain things, letting children sometimes feel a need for something, I'm not saying starve your children, please don't hear what I'm not saying, but having children, letting children have a need can benefit them in the long run. Dr. Richard Brumfield, a psychologist at Harvard Medical School, he says many parents often shower their children with gifts and never require them to earn something on their own. But spoiling your children with all the toys, clothes, and electronic gadgets they want deprives them of important life lessons, right? Deprives them of character, such as saving up for a treasured possession. If you get everything, you don't learn gratitude. And if you never have to wait, you won't learn patience, he says. And here the Lord, as a loving father, by allowing them to feel hunger in the wilderness, is also teaching them an important life lesson. And it's the lesson that there's more to life than food. There's more to life than having your hunger met all of the time. See, Israel, despite having been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, they ate very well. So much so that, that when they felt any hunger, they actually longed to go back to Egypt. They're saying, oh, I wish the Lord would have let us die in Egypt where we sat around pots of meat. Right? We had onions there. We had all kinds of things. So, I mean, Pharaoh was doing what a lot of leaders do uh, to subject their people, to make them think that they're free when really they're not. Sometimes having your needs met all the time gives you the illusion of freedom, doesn't it? Right? So Pharaoh did it with food. Um, Caesar did it with bread and games. He would keep the people entertained, and oh man, does America have an abundance of food and abundance of games. We're constantly entertained, constantly something keeping us distracted from actually feeling hunger. And yet there's still hunger, hunger for something deeper. And this is why so many people, I think nowadays, have convinced themselves that they have no need of God because their needs are always met, supposedly. But what does God do then to get our attention? That there's more to life than stuff, that there's more to life than food. He allows children to feel hunger. He allows us to feel that hunger, as he did 
for the people of Israel, to unspoil spoiled children. It's a form of loving discipline. Now, I know that's another no-no word in our society to discipline, but Dr. Brumfield of Harvard, right, a secular psychologist, not the Christian pastor saying that discipline is good, the secular psychologist says this. He says, parents must learn not only to avoid rescuing and overprotecting their children at every whine, complaint, and grumble, but to provide consistent discipline and consequences if children are ever to grow in their character. So it shouldn't surprise us that this is exactly what God is doing as a loving father. If you look down at verse 5, he says there, chapter 8, verse 5, Know then in your heart, as man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And the main reason for this is found just a little bit back in verse 3, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. God allows the people of Israel to experience hunger, to make us know on our journey that stuff will not provide the things that we need. Only God alone can feed us and give us the bread that we so long for. And so how do we stay on the whole way of the Lord? The first thing we see here is we must feed on God's word. We must feed on God's word. When Jesus was in the wilderness and he found himself in literal hunger when he was being tempted by Satan, Satan came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, you can turn these stones to bread and eat. In other words, you shouldn't hunger, Jesus. You should take matters into your own hands. You have the ability, do it. Turn these stones into bread. Your father won't feed you. Your father doesn't love you. You shouldn't wait. You have the ability. Do it on your own. Do it now. And Jesus responds with these very words from Deuteronomy. Get away from me. For man does not live on bread alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. But how about you, brothers and sisters? Friends. On your life's journey through the wilderness, when you feel that hunger, those cravings, and I'm not just talking about bread, but all those other cravings and grumblings that we get throughout our life's journey, the grumblings for success, to be one of the beautiful people, to look good and have this, a certain body type and image, right? The, the hunger for health, the hunger for wealth, the sexual cravings that we feel, what do we do with that? Often, we take matters into our own hands, don't we? We end up trying to conjure it up on our own, but all that leaves us with, despite preparing a big meal for ourselves and making it look all pretty, 24 hours later, we're still hungry. And it's because the things of this world aren't meant to provide us or satisfy us, that hunger that we have. God tells us it's only through him that we can be fed and satisfied. The scriptures tell us that God did that through Jesus. When Jesus walked this earth in John chapter 6, people came to him and asked him, what sign do you do that we might see and believe in you? What miracle do you perform? Our fathers ate bread. Our fathers ate manna 
in the wilderness. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you now. It's not saying my Father gave it to you. He's saying my Father right now in your presence gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. See, they recognized that bread only satisfies temporarily, but they needed something eternal. Give us this bread always. And Jesus responds to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so when we feel those, hunger, those cravings, that hunger for the stuff of the world, where do we go? We must go to the bread of life, the very words of God. And brothers and sisters, it's right here. God has had them written down for you, for you to feast on every day, but we're fasting from it. We don't come to God's word. Throughout your journey in life, do we bring it with us to snack on during the day? I mean, you have it in your phones too, right? could carry it anywhere. could snack on it when you feel those hungers, those cravings. But we don't. And we know that. I, I myself don't eat from it all the time, as I should. I get it. But it's when we're the most hungry, though, that we begin to recognize something. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who's hungry. You kind of see their heart a little bit, don't you? That hanger begins to come out. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's me. We don't know. I've, I've not been that hungry in front of you guys, have I? But maybe one day I will be and you'll see my true heart. See, it's when we're hungry that we see how self-absorbed we can be. We become like Audrey too in Little Shop of Horrors. Feed me, feed me, feed me. Right? I need it now. When you're hungry, that's when you see your true colors. And I think that's the point of hunger. If you look back in verse 2, testing you to know what is in your heart so that you can see it and recognize the need for something greater than stuff, than the bread of this world. But what if you don't really feel hungry all the time? What if you're not always craving stuff because, as, as I said, we live in America and we have everything that we need. We have everything that we want. I think it's in those moments, too, that we get a glimpse at our hearts See, hunger can show us how self-absorbed we can be, me, me, feed me. But abundance can show us our tendency towards self-righteousness. It's all about me. I did it. Like Frank Sinatra, you're going to get to the end of, of life and say, I did it my way. And Moses is warning Israel that if they weren't careful and they didn't keep the words of God ever before them, feeding on the word of God, snacking on it on their journey, that they would forget the God who freed them out of slavery. And when they forgot, they'd say in their very hearts, verse 17, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. I did this on my own. And chapter 9, verse 4, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. It's because of me. I'm such a good person. I deserve it. See, the hungry person, they at least know that they have a need outside of themselves. But the self-righteous person, 
they can't see outside of themselves. And so what does God do to discipline people to recognize that they need a righteousness also outside of themselves? He tells them straight up, you're not as righteous as you think you are. Chapter 9, verse 6, you're not righteous, you're stubborn. Chapter 9, verse 8, you're not righteous, you're rebellious. All the way down to chapter 9, verse 24, Moses tells them, you have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. In other words, as the Bible tells everyone, you've been rebellious since birth. In other words, you're no better than anyone else. You're not morally superior. There's nothing in you that would make God say, you deserve heaven. You did such good work during your life. And what this scripture is doing for us is actually connecting righteous character with the promise of the good land. That in order to get to the good land, in order to enter the land and remain in there, you need righteous character. It's like the golden ticket in Fortnite to get into the vault. You need that golden ticket. Some of, nobody knows what Fortnite is. It's okay. It's okay. But Moses is reminding Israel here then of their blatant unrighteousness because he goes into then the account of the golden calf where they were the most unrighteous in making for themselves a golden image. And in order for them to enter the good land and stay in there, they needed to recognize what Paul would later say about them in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 3, that being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They needed a righteousness that was outside of them, but they had no way of getting that. And all God wanted from them was their humility, their humility to recognize that, that they didn't have what it takes. Again, chapter 8, verse 2, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. And so how do we stay on the whole way of the Lord then? We've already said we must feed on God's word, but secondly, we must humbly grasp hold of that righteousness that is outside of us, God's righteousness. We feed on God's word and we grasp his righteousness. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Brownlee brothers. Jonathan and Alistair Brownlee are triathletes who have competed at the highest levels of the sport. And if there's anyone who knows that they can do it on their own, it's a triathlete. I mean, they're literally swimming, biking, running on their own for miles and miles and miles and several hours. And these brothers have competed at the highest levels. And just a few years ago during the World Series finale, one of the brothers, this was uh, Jonathan Brownlee, he had a commanding lead. I mean, he was several hundred meters in front of everybody and just had minutes to go in the race to win first place, when suddenly he felt the effects of heat exhaustion come over him. And if you ever see the video, you can look it up. It's, well, it's not wholesome, but it's, it's okay to watch. Um, he looked like jello, literally jello on the side of the road. He could not stand up. His legs were wobbly. He begins trying to crawl, but, you know, obviously depleted of electrolytes. There was no way he was going to win. And several hundred meters behind him was the competition for second and third place. And in that two-man pack was his brother, Alistair. And they come around the bend, 
and they see the first place right in front of them, and they're catching up, they're closing in on the distance. And what Alistair did will go down as one of, one of the greatest sporting moments in history. Instead of just passing him and running and, and winning first place, he stopped. And he, st- and he, scooped, he, stood, he stooped down to where his brother was, and he helped his brother up as the other person ran past him to take first place. And he put his brother, he helped his brother stand up, put his brother's arm over his shoulder, and literally carried him the rest of the, the rest of the hundred meters to the finish line. And at the end of the finish line, he pushed his brother before him. He forewent glory in order to give his brother what his brother couldn't muster up on his own. Friends, just like the Brownlee brothers, the Bible tells us that we are like Jonathan, trying to make it to the end of the race, try, striving for heaven, but we're literally like jello on the side of the road. But the Bible also tells us that because of who God is, he stooped down from heaven in order to pick us up and give us the righteousness that we need. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read there that for our sake, he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To have that righteousness that we need to enter into the good land. He gave it to us. But here's the dilemma in everything that I'm saying. In wanting to feed on God's word and wanting to grasp hold of his righteousness, we have no ability to even do that on our own. Because like the people of Egypt, I'm sorry, the people of Israel several hundred years ago, several thousand years ago, I should say, our hearts have been forged by 400 years of the fire of harsh slavery in Egypt. Our hearts have been forged in the fires of Egypt. They're hearts of stone. The Bible tells us that we're born into this world as rebellious, hardened hearts. And what God needs to do in order for us to even feed on his word and hold onto his righteousness is give us new hearts. And this is why I think chapter 10, verse 15, is probably one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. That even though God had every reason to leave self-absorbed, self-righteous sinners on the side of the road, those who were spoiled children, yet, we read there, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people, you above all people, as you are this day. I mean, what kind of love is this? That the God of heaven, the God who owns everything, who has no need, would give his heart to us. He would set his heart on us like a mother lays a warm blanket over a sick child to warm them and then rub their back. That's what God does for us, even though we didn't deserve it. To set your heart on someone means to commit to them, to love them, to cherish them. It's very similar to marriage vows whether they love you back or not. It's a decision that you make to love someone despite having that reciprocated. 
We should reciprocate it, and we often don't. But that's the covenant that God made with us, that he would do this, that he would bring us to a good land. See, when the Lord sets his heart on you, what he does is he takes that heart of stone and he gives you a new heart, which is what he said he would do in Ezekiel chapter 36, where he says there to the people of Israel and to believers all over the world, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And this is what God has done to even give you the ability to feed on his word and to grasp hold of his righteousness. We need new hearts even for that. And then recognizing what the Lord has done for you, what should our response be to this? To this God who is King of kings and Lord of lords. I think the only right response, there's two, the only two right responses, I should say then, is what we see Moses do here in verse 17 of chapter 10. He worships. He worships this God. Just the mere mention of God setting his heart on, his, on the forefathers and on us as people leads him into adoration of God. He goes there and he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the might, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And down to verse 21, He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. We worship this God. And secondly, and lastly, our response should be what we see in verse 19, that we are to love the sojourner. Recognizing that you yourselves were once lost and sojourners in Egypt, you are to love those who yet do not know of this God, those who are just as lost as you once were. And as God has loved you and came for you, we must be willing to tear through barriers to make him known to others. Jesus is the primary example of that, who broke through the barrier of heaven, became flesh in order to feed the hungry. We are to love sojourners, those who do not know the Lord yet, as God has loved you and was willing to give up everything for you. And so, beloved, how is it that we stay on the whole way of the Lord? Well, first we saw that we must feed on his word, we must humbly grow, hold fast to his righteousness. But lastly, we must love. We must love with the heart that God has given for you. Let us try and strive to do that well in the name of the Son who gave it all for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a God who moves heaven and earth in order to be with your people, Lord. We had nothing in us to give. As Augustus Top Lady once said, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And Father, I ask that you would help us to do that as well, to cling to your cross knowing that the bread that we need for life, that the righteousness we need for the good land is only through the heart that you have set on us. Father, help us to love those who do not yet know you in order that they too might know that you are the good God who gives everything for them. Would you be with us 
and help us to do this well to your glory. Amen and amen.